0: Hello and welcome to I-Tremel Robotics Podcast. Hello, Ginger. Thanks so much for joining us in the podcast. I would like to ask you to introduce and how you would like to define yourself for the audience for the first time listening to
1: you. I usually introduce myself as Dr. Ginger Campbell, but you can call me Ginger. I am the host of Brain Science, a podcast I've been creating since 2006. And the goal of my show is to share neuroscience with audience of a wide variety of backgrounds. I have a lot of engineers that listen. So maybe I'm
0: curious to ask you, how was your childhood? Do you have any members uh, from your childhood being interested in science or technology?
1: Well, I grew up during the space program, in specific, the moon um, race. Um, in fact, I ended up, in Alabama because my father worked for Boeing and we moved to Huntsville, which is where Werner von Braun was and the Saturn rocket was developed. The Saturn rocket was the rocket that Apollo, that sent Apollo to the moon. So yes, I grew up in an engineering environment, <laughs> an environment where scientists and engineers were much more respected than they seem to be today.
0: Why do you say that? Why you see say...
1: Well, in the States, I mean, I don't know where you are, but in the States, we're in a sort of anti science anti-science climate. That's why we're having so much trouble with COVID. People won't pay attention to the science.
0: Mm-hmm. May I ask you, where does this come from? Or why do you see this declination in towards maybe anti science? Why is this happening? Do you think, uh, why is this happening?
1: Gosh, I don't know. I think there's a lot of factors. There's probably historically always been a little bit of an anti-intellectual populist trend in the United States that comes and goes. But I think there's a lot of other things going on Um, in the humanities, you know, there's Postmodernism, which says that science is just another way of looking at things and doesn't acknowledge that there could be any um, criteria for any kind of truth, so that's a problem.
0: And do you think uh, maybe academy plays role in that? Maybe how they can convince the general public, or maybe that awareness, maybe between
1: lay people as well. In the humanities, if science is disrespected and there's a separation between those two worlds, um, it, it's, it, it's a problem. I mean, a lot of people don't understand what science really is. You know, the way that it's taught in school is, is so bad. It's taught as a set of dry facts rather than as a process. So you can understand why kids might not understand that it's different. You know, they get a set of so-called facts in their history class and then they get a so- set of so-called facts in their science class and they don't even realize that the way those two batches of so-called facts were acquired is different
0: yeah yeah i can't agree more with you i think this is really an excellent point and sometimes we cover that in the bus classes bill and i'm curious to ask you how do you envision maybe education since we have uh, maybe now to encourage students to memorize instead of questioning the truth of the information to receive at the school and even at grad school as well the same issue so if for you how you would envision that science that looks like for you that could maybe deployed in undergrad school as well and even k-12
1: as well yeah well just teaching people that it's not a dry set of facts it's a process um that we're always trying to learn more, and that it doesn't mean that something's wrong if we change our mind. I mean, right now we also live in a world where changing your mind is, you know, labeled as, you know, wishy-washy or flipping or flopping. And instead of, uh, you know, admiring someone who can say, yeah, I made a mistake, yeah, I was wrong, they get, you know, they get crucified for that. So you can't blame people for never admitting they're wrong well you can but i mean you can at least understand why they don't and you know the anti-science people always look at well science has changed their position that means that science is bad you know because it's so different from religion where they have a set of beliefs and then they're like these beliefs have to stay the same forever you know you can't get much different
0: yeah yeah i think this point is so tricky even in history when we look to the religion and science i think there's always conflict sometimes and i don't know how do you think something still we have it in the modern society do you still think we have it
1: well we do in the united states that's for sure i mean look at the fact that only a third of americans believe in evolution despite the fact that the science is so solid it's as solid as the discovery that the Earth goes around the sun rather than the other way around.
0: So maybe I'm curious to you, do you think that that's a reason for you to, why you started the podcast and the Versa class? You now, I think, you have 13 years in your podcast.
1: Is this a reason? Why- well, the reason was that one of the side effects, and I think one of the reasons why Americans are so scientifically illiterate is that the coverage of science in the mainstream media is so bad. I mean, I grew up with... You know, Walter Cronkite explaining, you know, how we were getting to the moon, right? Now there's practically no real science on the mainstream media. Jobs for science journalists are so scarce. They're mostly in academia being, you know, press officers. Because, you know, except for the New York Times, who still employs a few science journalists, it's almost a a lost, you know... um, field, so what I wanted to do was present accurate comprehensible neuroscience to people because there are so many myths out there
0: Yeah, so I think also this point is very important because when we look at the history, even for example Carl Sagan for example, or Neil deGrasse Tyson I think one of the uh, stories about uh, Carl Sagan when he saw the series Cosmos I think he was Uh, facing, uh, I think, uh, some of criticism and even gets the tenure denied uh, because of uh, his work as uh, a TV host. And some professors say that this is not really uh, a scientific work. Why do you think there's maybe underappreciation sometimes for podcasters, especially scientific podcasts? and, uh, And even sometimes... And academia, sometimes they don't like that. Not all of them, of course, we're not making a generalization here, but still this vision, as you say, not represented very well. And also it just it's exclusive to academia, not, not to be discussed in a platform like podcast.
1: Right. I mean, Carl Sagan, I don't know about his tenure, but I know that he was denied membership into the National Academy of Sciences, which is a very prestigious organization, because he was a science communicator and there is still some sig- stigma, but I think the, that attitude is changing. Younger scientists, I think, realize that if we don't start communicating what we're doing, people aren't gonna want to support it. So I think that attitude is, is changing. So I don't think the problem is so much at the side of science um, now, but there is a big gap because you know the science we're doing now is so sophisticated that it's harder to explain than say what galileo did right people can't just see it so easily right you can't you can't do a particle physics experiment in high school <laughs> um, so it's it, it's going to be a challenge also though the value of neuroscience is that we're also yeah. learning about how we learn and so hopefully eventually that can that can make its way into the way science is taught,
0: and through your podcast now I think you have thirteen years uh podcasting now, so how was this a journey for you? What really changed in you or maybe in the audience? if you can describe this process over thirteen years?
1: Well, when I started, I was very focused on basic ideas, you know, like things like explaining that emotions are constructed in the brain they're you know, they're not just something separate. Um, the idea that have how memory works, that it's not perfect the way people assume it should be. So basic, very, very basic ideas. Um, over time, naturally, my own interests have evolved, and I read much more um, high-level literature. I mostly read academic books written by researchers. And then I try to, you know condense their their ideas down into something everybody else can appreciate. So the show's evolved in that sense. But I've also gotten a lot of feedback from my listeners that have shaped the show. The biggest thing is listeners say they like the summaries at the end, so I make it a point of every episode reminding them, okay, this the, these are the key ideas of this episode. And every December, I do a review episode where I go through all the episodes of the year and what was the key ideas. That's fun because when you look back over the year, you can see how the different guests, their ideas overlap and tie together and, you know, enrich each other. So I, I enjoy doing that, although it's a lot of work. The other thing is I've really learned a lot about well first of all the idea that you can only make a show for a certain limited audience I think is false. I've learned I mean I have listeners who haven't even been to college I've gotten emails from house painters and plumbers and things like that and so what I try to do is I try to vary the technical level of the show even though my own reading is is more technical than it used to be. I still try to have, you know, basic episodes and more technical episodes and more or less alternate them, although that's not always practical. And what I've learned is that the listeners that have less technical backgrounds don't have to understand every little thing. What they want is they want to know what the main idea is and they don't want to be talked down to. I mean, the biggest a problem to me with the way mainstream media covers neuroscience is that they do one of two things. They either hype things. There's a lot of hype. It's too superficial. Um, they perpetuate myths like you only use 10% of your brain. Um, but then or, you know, I love Neil deGrasse Tyson, but... Do we really need all these special effects? Aren't the ideas good enough? I mean, the neatest thing about making an audio podcast is, you know, you can concentrate on the ideas. I'm not making a bunch of, of special effects, and I think I'm an outlier there because I think a lot of um, shows think, well, I've got to have all this audio design, and I mean, Radio Lab is, is the poster child for that. Um, and I don't have the resources to make a show like that, and it doesn't hurt my show, because people aren't coming for the special effects. They're coming for the ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's also excellent point. Maybe you have to unpack here one of the points you said about hyping, and maybe sometimes it's superficial. And do you think when you try to maybe satisfy different sections of uh, listeners here, do you think it's tricky for you to keep uh, a loyal audience since you try to maybe have different tastes for the each episode, maybe technical sometimes and maybe basic one. And the hype you said about how you also try to maybe the guest sometimes try to promote themselves and maybe tend sometimes to hype things. How you can also make this episode rational for the audience and deliver truth. And to-
1: well, I, I rarely have. In fact, I can't even think of an example of a guest trying to promote something. And I think it's because I don't, and I get plenty of pitches, but I turn them all down. I don't generally have guests that are selling anything. I mean, their book doesn't count because the con- these kinds of books are never going to be bestsellers. Um, if somebody says, well, I've got this product, you know, neuroscience product, which there is no end of, I must get at least an email a day on that. I just say, no, this is not a self-help show. This is a show about science. Um, So I don't really have a problem with that. You know, I have a few listeners who will complain. There's a few listeners who, they complain, but they've been around forever. Whenever I have a general level um, episode, you know, they say, I need more hard science, more hard science. But I don't worry about them because, nah, they're complaining. They're still they're still listening. Um, I've really been surprised about how many students listen. That was not something I anticipated. The thing I really appreciate is the other neuroscientists, the other neuroscientists that listen, because you know, science has become so technical that it's very difficult. You can't just go in and read someone else's papers. And so they enjoy hearing what the guy in the, you know, a related area is doing. So that's really fun. And they keep me on the straight and narrow because I know, you know, I got to stick to, the, to the, the facts and the accurate because they're going to call me on it if I don't. So, um, and what's another big surprise is how many people will say, I listened to this episode two or three times. And and that's that's been always been going on. So it's kind of interesting. I don't think that affects my download numbers because I assume that people are listening to the same downloaded version more than once.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. Also, to ask you this question because um, it's tricky sometimes when we see um, that, as you mentioned, sometimes audience prefer listening to the guest and maybe have this kind of this deep conversation. It's, uh, I'm not going to read the paper. Sometimes paper, you know, we know this have issue about publish or perish in academia, but I think, why do you think people prefer sometimes uh, listening uh, rather than reading the paper? Also, we know that paper is the main currency for academia.
1: Well, I I think it's because, you know, well, one thing, the, the style of writing in papers... In engineering in particular is really bad. Um, I did start out as an electrical engineer and was a member of IEEE in my younger years <laughs> so I know what engineering papers are like. Um, you know they're they're not generally written in a way that is pleasant to read but you know most of the time what you want to know is what are the key ideas and that's one reason but as audio in general I think people like being able to this is why I don't think video podcasts are going to wipe out audio podcasts because people like to be able to listen while they're doing something else while they're exercising, commuting, cleaning the house, whatever. They like being able and they like and of course they like being able to choose when they listen, which is another reason why podcasts are so popular. Um, as opposed to radio. Um, but in the thing is, I don't... I have one guest, actually, who's been on my show five times, which is the record for my guests. And his first interview was in 2008, and he was recently on again. Um, a guy named Seth Grant, who I wouldn't be surprised if he wins a Nobel Prize someday. Um, anyway, he... Um, He's unusual because he's a basic scientist, and he usually comes on when he's written, just published an interesting paper, but that's not what I usually do. Usually I interview people who have written books. So what, you know, I guess this is one of those things people do when they're on sabbatical, right? They they write a book. It's a thing to do on sabbatical. And so neuroscientists write books about their area. That's what I usually focus on, and I... It's sort of a good screen because it tells me that the person's going to have fairly decent communication skills. Writing a book is a test of communication skills because it's not like writing a paper. And it makes it easy for my listeners to know where to go when they want to learn more, more detail. Because in an hour, I mean, we're just hitting the high points. Um, So my normal focus is on interviewing people who have written a book. Uh, and, and usually an academic uh, press book, but not always, but a high-quality book that's got references.
0: So maybe we have a few questions here because we want to understand what what you're doing. And I think each episode is really interesting, and I think you're trying really to make effort to let even the general public know what's what topic you can we can share in neuroscience. The first question I think we need to ask here. What is human
1: brain, and why it's too complex to understand? Well, 86 billion neurons is quite a few neurons, that's that's one thing, and each neuron is connected to at least a thousand other neurons, so, you know, do the math. Um, but the other thing is that the brain is so different from a computer. It's you know, it's not fixed. Um, there is some evidence that, that there are elements in the cortex that are similar throughout the cortex, which is why the visual cortex can actually learn to do something besides vision if it's connected up differently. But um, it's all about who's talking to who, and those connections are constantly changing. And then there's the chemical nature of the brain. I mean, it's not just the action potentials, you know, that go from one neuron to the other. Those are a very small piece of what's going on. Um, One of the things that Seth Grant has done, which is why I think he will eventually get a, a Nobel Prize, is that he has discovered that the molecular machinery of the synapse, you know, the synapse is the connection between neurons where the, you know, action potential then A neurotransmitter is released, it goes to the next neuron, the next neuron does its thing. Um, I mean, the whole thing that an action potential, which is the electrical part of the brain, does is just tell one neuron to release neurotransmitters to the next. But what happens when the neurotransmitter gets to the next neuron? It has to hit something called a receptor. Everybody's heard of that. But it turns out that there are all kinds of little very complicated molecular machines in the wall of the synapse that are acting like little computers. And the wild thing is, they are not the same in every single neuron. They're different according to where in the brain they are. They're actually not the same in invertebrates and vertebrates. This is a surprise. Most people don't even know it yet. But all this chemical stuff that's going on as another layer of complexity. So that's the reason I'm it up. So here we have, you almost might call it a hybrid if you were gonna use the computer metaphor. It's almost like a hybrid between an analog and a digital computer. Now you're probably too young to have ever seen an analog computer. Um, I was lucky because I grew up in Huntsville and analog computers were used to simulate the moon launch. Most people don't under, know this. And after the after Apollo, <laughs> uh, NASA, NASA gave the University of Alabama in Huntsville, which is where I went for undergraduate, they gave the university all these analog computers, you know, to, to get, well, they may not, they probably came from the private companies, because they would have been tax write- write-offs, but anyway, we had all these analog computers, and we got to practice, you know, how you would simulate a moon launch, you know, and... So my point was that it's almost like the brain is a combination. It's not just a, it's not, it's definitely not a digital computer. So it's much more complex. You. It would be complex if the only thing it did was be plastic, i.e. it can change. You know, you build a computer, you don't expect the chips to change, right? They're going to be the same... The rest of the, nobody has figured out how to make a computer plastic in the sense of the hardware yet, but the brain changes its own hardware constantly.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. So maybe I'm curious to ask you about the intelligence, what's intelligence as well and emotions. But first of all, when, for example, and Einstein, for example, uh, I think one of the experiment try to see why he's intelligent and what is the reason that his frame is different? Is his brain different from normal person? If you can tell us how intelligence looks like in a brain and also consciousness as well, and emotion.
1: Okay, so you have hit two very complex subjects. And first, it's important to realize that intelligence and consciousness are not the same thing. And for anyone who's interested in this, I recommend the... The writings of Jeff Hawkins, who wrote a book. Oh gosh, way back when I, his ep, his book actually was one of the first featured. He wrote a book called On Intelligence. Jeff Hawkins what, is an engineer. He is the was one of the inventors of the original Palm Pilot. For anybody who remembers PDAs, they came before smartphones. And after he made you know became a millionaire from that, he went into neuroscience because that was what he really wanted and he's founded a couple of institutes and he's working on a project to try to do a computer simulation of the cortex just the cortex not the whole brain just the cortex the reason I mention his work is a he's going to have a new book coming out um, sometime in the next few months on this very subject but um he, in his first book, he really emphasized that he was not even trying to touch consciousness. Consciousness was outside the realm of what he was trying to deal with. He was just trying to talk about intelligence. So intelligence, a simple definition of intelligence is, you know, making the right response to a situation, right? So, in that simple definition, even an amoeba A single-celled organism or a bacteria has a certain kind of intelligence, because it goes away from good, bad stuff and goes toward good stuff. So that's the beginnings. Um, Why would Einstein be smarter than you and me? Actually, we don't exactly know yet. His brain, to the extent that we are able to study. What's left of it is not all that different from ours, but remember I told you that the connections are plastic and constantly changing, so you wouldn't be able to tell from a dead brain how it was different when it was alive. Um, We're a long way away from that. Um, The current theory of intelligence centers on the idea of prediction, the idea that the brain's job is to predict what you're going to need. What the, it's going to predict what the body is going to need, predict what's going to happen. Prediction, prediction, prediction. That is the key idea that, that most neuroscientists in this field are working with. And it's really fascinating because it explains things like when a policeman accidentally shoots a person who does not have a weapon, but they say... I saw a gun. It does not mean that they are lying. It is entirely possible that they really did see a gun. Because even our visual system predicts. We've all had the experience when we think we see a certain thing and then we look back and we realize, no, it wasn't that. I mean, the most common one is you think you saw a snake, right? And then you realize, no, it was just a stick. But that's because the brain is... It takes the information and it makes a prediction, and then the next step is the error correction. Oh, no, it's not really that. It's, you know, but if you don't have time, you know, you don't want to step on a snake, your first response is going to be step away from that possible snake, right? So from an evolutionary standpoint, you can see why the prediction part, we may sometimes have to act before we have figured out whether the prediction is correct.
0: Yeah, I have a quick question here. I think this point is very fascinating. But what makes it different from gut feeling, for example? If you saw something and, like, example the chicken and then a snake, for example, and then you have to correct, why do you think this happened in the first class? This is like really false prediction. And is it different from the gut feeling when you
1: didn't see something but you, it happened later. It's right. How this happened as well? Right, like if you were. Walking along, and suddenly you had the feeling that, that you were in danger. That probably, well, first of all, they there are they are related clearly to survival. Um, if you you know, so much processing, possibly ninety five percent of what our brain does is unconscious. So this means that our brain is constantly processing, you know. Somebody has done calculations of how much information goes in the eye, which most of it is gone before it gets to our consciousness. Um, Lots of information, much more than we could ever consciously deal with. And intuition or gut feelings are sort of, and this is a simplification, sort of like a first approximation. And so if it appears that you need to do something right away the grass is moving it might be a tiger that sort of thing then your gut feeling is going to prompt you to do something right away because there's not time right you need to act before all the processing can reach consciousness so the key idea here is to understand that there's nothing magical about gut feelings if you have a gut feeling about something, it is not necessarily true. Obviously, you should pay attention to it, especially if you're in a situation where you don't have time to analyze. I mean, go with your gut and and then, you know, figure out what happened. That's That's how we survive. But if you're making a decision, this relates to another thing, which is the fact that the so-called spotlight of attention, what you can pay attention to at one time, is very limited. It's like the bottleneck of consciousness is what we can pay attention to. Um, I talked to some vision scientists, Stephen Macknick and Susanna Condate martinez about this several years ago, And, and Susanna said, you know, if you're making a decision, they, this couple of neuroscientists, they study vision, they work with, magicians to see what what magicians do could teach them about how the brain works cuz magicians are the you know the masters of making you see things that didn't happen right and they do this by taking advantage of the fact that the attentional spotlight is narrow they get you to, they use misdirection they get you to look at the wrong things so you don't see them you know do their sleight of hand so that's, they studied this because it really tells us a lot about how the brain works. But Susanna said, you know, if you're having to make a big decision, um, you really want to use the good old-fashioned, <laughs> make a list of pros and cons, and then look at each per- thing on the list one at a time, i.e., give it your full attention. Think just about that item. Move on to the next one before you make a decision. I would add, probably sleep on it because how often have you had a hard problem that you can't figure out? You go to bed or you're taking a shower and it's like the answer pops into your mind? Have you had that experience? Yeah, sometimes it's a lot, <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's because all this processing is going on unconsciously. So I would add to Susanna's advice. Okay, now I've made my list of pros and cons, and I've thought about each one at a time. Now I'm gonna. Now I'm gonna. I'm gonna sleep on it. Let it process in my unconscious. Um, and then the next day, and then a lot, and then the the final weird part is we all reach this point where we're sure. A, I'm gonna make this decision, some big decision. I'm gonna marry the person that I met. I'm gonna make a new job i'm going to quit my job and now we feel absolutely sure about it that also that what we call feeling of certainty also happens for the most part in the unconscious which is why two people can look at the same set of facts and reach different conclusions and i could tell you a bunch of facts and it's not going to change your mind Because all this processing has gone down. I don't consciously control my beliefs. This is something that people really don't understand. They think you choose. I chose to believe in God or I chose not to believe in God. No, that's not how it works. Because, like I said, most of this is happening unconsciously. And we only, we see the tip of the, we experience, I guess I should say, the tip of the iceberg key idea is that our brain... I mean, it's the ultimate in virtual reality, right? Our brain creates the world we experience. Each one of us experiences a slightly different world. Because each one of us has a different brain.
0: What do you mean different brain? Uh, to mis- can you specify more?
1: Well, because every experience that I have that's different from your experience is going to change the wiring of even twins. Okay, they're not identical in this in their brains in the sense that they're gonna have slightly different experiences, even though they may, you know, for example, if one twin has schizophrenia, there's a high probability the other twin will, but it's not a hundred percent. It's not even fifty percent. So there's a lot more to it than than just genetics experience has a lot to do with how our brains turn out. I'm curious to ask you, do you think maybe
0: this wiring can be changed? Do you think as a human, if you have certain experiences or trauma, for example, or any kind of conditions in the brain,
1: do you think maybe this can be changed? Well, absolutely. That's what's made, meant by the term brain plasticity. But of course, plasticity is a relative term you know a a child a a young child a baby their brain is going to be super duper plastic Um, I'm 65 years old my brain is probably not as plastic as yours because you're younger than me but it's still plastic I can still learn new things I can form new habits Um, years ago I interviewed a doctor who wrote this book that it was very. It was a bestseller called "The Brain That Changes Itself," and he he basically wrote about all the pioneers of the discovery of neuroplasticity because a hundred years ago it was believed, you know, that all you did was lose neurons, and you know there was this sort of fixed view of the brain, and so it took a while for the actual um, discovery to make it the world but now it's you know like hot everybody's like oh use brain plasticity do blah 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 but it does have its limits but he he talked about the dark side of brain plasticity he said it's like if you went skiing and every time you ski you go down the same ruts as you went down before eventually you get you know down in these deep ruts and you can't change your path that's kind of the way habits are, right? We Once we get a habit, is something we almost do automatically because it's we're sort of stuck down in that rut. So changing a habit, right, or making a new habit, slut, is hard. That's an example of, you know, you've kind of, the limits of brain plasticity, I, I guess I would say. Um, and there's actually a sort of a relatively new idea that, One of the reasons why brain plasticity lessens as we get older has to do with glial cells. Glial cells are the... They used to be thought to be just supportive. They're the cells that aren't neurons that are in the brain. And they actually outnumber the neurons. And um, recently, I think somebody has discovered that the sort of matrix that they form around the neurons becomes more fixed over time, and that may contribute to the lo- loss of plasticity. But that's that's still, you know, that hasn't been proven. But it's, it's kind of <clears throat> a fascinating possibility. But the reality is we all know that it's harder to learn things like languages as we get older. As That's the most obvious example of, um, of, of the loss of plasticity.
0: I think this is a really excellent point. I'm curious to ask you for about the, the glao cells, for example, in Einstein, for example, they found they have more glao cells than maybe normal person, and that's why it makes him maybe genius and If we look to people who can speak nine language, for example, how they can process this information. Do you think it's about the glao cells?
1: Well, I think it's likely. <clears throat> and this is just my opinion, it's likely that glial cells are a part of the answer, but when it comes to the brain, things are usually never as simple as people think. For example, we have this long-running, you know, argument about nature versus nurture, right? Well, in the end, everything is both. Almost everything is both. For example, um, the idea of epigenetics, which is that experience changes gene gene per- expression. <clears throat> that is, that's an overlap because now you have your genes, which you would have thought was their nature, right? But if if your experience can change your genes, then they can't be separate. And that definitely happens in the genes in the brain. I mean, one thing people don't, most people don't know is, You know, Well, most people know that every cell in the body has the entire genetic code. But only certain genes, in any given cell, only certain genes are turned on. I mean, your liver knows it's a liver because I'm using that term figuratively. Your liver is a liver because the genes to make a liver are turned on. In your brain, it's a brain because the genes to make a brain are turned on, but it turns out that if you look at neurons in different parts of the brain, different genes are turned on. And which genes are turned on can change. One of the things that Seth Grant discovered was that you could actually look at a mouse and figure out how old it is by which genes are turned on. Like there's like a calendar of on-offing of your genes that they follow. That's kind of weird, but um so nature and nurture can't be separated <laughs> there it's it's all it's it's usually both, which is one of the reasons why brains are so complex hmm mm-hmm.
0: yeah, that's very interesting. I'm also curious to about the learning things you mentioned about brain plasticity, and you still have the ability to learn and do this kind of activities to learn for new things. But when we look to the nature, for example, the innateism or have the innate to do something, what's the difference between having the innate and also you you are able to learn? If they are the same or different. For example, when we look to the animal, they born, they can walk directly um, without learning. Is there a difference between
1: innatism and learning here? Right. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we're still really um, discovering new things about because it's only recently that scientists have figured out ways to study very young babies to figure out what they actually can do at the beginning. I mean, people have figured out by studying newborns that they are actually born with a certain innate ideas about, we call it physics and because they, they seem to expect um, certain objects to do certain things. They also can tell a difference between an inanimate object and an animate object. They expect animate objects or so-called agents to behave differently than they do an inanimate object. And this has been demonstrated even in newborns. So that says that we, we start out with, even humans start out with a little bit of innate stuff. But the baby's a learning machine, so from the very be, I take that from Stanislav Dahan, I recommend, if you're really interested in this, he has a brand new, he's a very w- well-respected neuroscientist in France. He has a new book out called How We Learn. Well, it's not new now, it's been out all year, but um, anyway, because they, they're learning sponges, they learn, learn, learn like crazy. Um, if you don't... You know, even once a baby's a few days old, it's already learned stuff. So it makes it really tricky to figure out what was innate. But based on our current understanding, it appears that that's one of the things that makes humans different, is that we have this learning machinery, right, that allows us to learn so, many, so much more than, um, than, than any other animal even our fellow primates, even though they have um, some abilities.
0: Yeah, that's uh, also interesting. And maybe I'm curious to ask you, for example, when we look to the nature, for example, there is like a famous example of uh, the dead fish swimming upstream. <laughs> we discuss this all the podcast most of the time, because soft robotics is something very interesting, and we ask how we can access this beneficial non in the in the body so that we can have this interesting deformation. But of course there is an the example here how does this happen uh, from this dead fish still functioning as if, if it like uh, uh, like a live fish how does this happen is this about the body in this case the morphology or I don't how you explain that
1: are you talking about the mm the functional MRI of the dead fish that yes talking? that of a f- uh, famous example uh, <laughs> yeah okay. So that doesn't mean that the dead fish was doing anything. It just means that signals come when you do an MRI no matter what, and that they have to be separated out. That That study was demonstra- done to demonstrate how you can't just look at an fMRI signal and say, aha, the brain's doing this. This part lights up. That part lights up. Um. More sophisticated studies have shown that there is every part of the brain has more than one thing that it does. It's not like the brain, the, the visual cortex can only do vision. It does mostly vision. Um, now the current idea is what's called neuronal recycling, which is the idea that neurons can participate in multiple networks. And that's what the reason why neuroscientists are moving toward a network approach, realizing that what really matters is who's talking to who. You look at an individual neuron, the job that it's doing in a particular time is going to depend on, mostly, on who it's talking to. Um, so localization, that's the idea that every part of the brain is dedicated to certain activity is only true at a very limited level. So it's true there are parts of the brain that, you know, move your arm and move your leg, and there's parts of the brain that deal with sensory signals. But when you get into the other parts of the brain, it gets a lot more complicated. Um, You know, it's not like the frontal lobe is just up there being the boss, like some people imagine, for example. It's much more um, complicated than that. So back to your original question of complexity. So when you look at when you look at MRI pictures and they say, Oh, this part of the brain lights up when you do XYZ, take it with a grain of salt. Because all those you know, all those pictures are computer generated. <laughs> Everything about FMRI is computer generated, right? Um, and the person you know, they have to set, first of all, they decide, you know, what the, what the, what's a signal and what they're going to eliminate, right? They decide, they calibrate it to a, to a certain thing. So, um, to a certain extent you can, you can make, it's almost like the old, you can do, you can lie with statistics problem, um, and most of the problems with fMRI, such as the problem of the dead fish, you know, reputable neuroscientists have figured out ways to deal with these problems. But it's still true that, that you need to take this stuff with a grain of salt because the brain is much more than a bunch of modules um, and saying, oh, this part of your brain lights up when you look at a picture of so-and-so now it is that idea of the you know the the Jennifer Aniston neuron which we don't have time to get into today I mean that really is a real finding but it's much more complicated than the way it's been portrayed in the news media
0: yeah yeah that's also um, uh, maybe a good perspective for this experiment. So, But maybe I'm curious to ask you when we look to the nature, there are some creatures that don't have a brain and still exhibit this intelligence with their body or maybe uh, changing their um, shape. So, how do you see this intelligence? Do you think brain in other species as well is necessary
1: if we look to Sorry. nature? Yeah. The current thinking is that the brain is important for action. Because, for example, there's that one little um, squid, um, I'm blanking on what it's called, that starts out with a little brain, um, you know, floats around in the water, picks a spot, fixes itself, then eats its brain and stays in that spot for the rest of its life absorbing the nutrients that go by uh, that's an extreme example um, but most neuroscientists now I think would agree that if you look at evolution it it looks like the thing that drove brains was was the need for action you know because before that there would be there there was action but everything was reflex if you look at what a bacteria does it can only react, you know, to or fro, right? It can't, you know, and, and it's immediate. No, once you have a brain, you can start thinking about things like, well, what if I did this instead of that? Um, so, I mean, even, and birds are a lot more, are a lot more intelligent than most people realize. So it's not just about having a cortex,
0: I think this is really also important point about reflex because we asked this question before the podcast. You cannot put more about reflex because I think, yeah, for example, if you smash a fly and we say that it may be due to reflex, but uh, one of the guests say they have a brain or kind of feedback, feedback to you can feel the air is approaching the wing and then they can fly. And that's what reflex. I don't know if you have a definition to, that how we can, uh, how we can, uh,
1: identifier flex and brain in certain species. Hmm. Well, you when you start talking about the fly, you bring up a very interesting point which is the, um, the question of when does consciousness arise? And there is actually a school of thought in neuroscience now that includes insects among conscious creatures. And that's a very complicated subject. I r- recommend that um, anyone interested go back in my back catalog because I have an episode about it. But because the the, the criteria are, are not in the top of my head right this minute. But um, some scientists actually now believe that insects are conscious. And the basic idea here is that they have that there. There's evidence that they have the part of a brain that would be needed to have some kind of awareness of the world, um, and to be able to react to the world. So that is saying not to say that it's not a reflex when they respond to the flyswatter, any more than it isn't a reflex when I mean we. We'll reflexively duck when we think something's heading for our head, too. But um, but there is actually evidence that, that they are conscious. Not the way we are, okay? I'm not saying self-awareness conscious. That's not what I mean. It's called, that kind of consciousness is called primary consciousness or sensory consciousness. They have some awareness of the world. Um that's still a little bit of a controversial idea but fascinatingly i think and maybe when you mention birds can be more intelligent than human you have example no no i didn't well they might be more intelligent than some humans but that's not what i meant no i mean they can do some especially the the corvids which is the family that crows are in you know it's been demonstrated that they can do things like simple tool use they can hide food in caches and remember where they are and go back and find them things like that um, and 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 that's important because it gets back to the question of consciousness in you know um, there are those that think you can't be conscious unless you have a Cortex, and I think that's too narrow a view of consciousness.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's also excellent point. But maybe I'm just asking about the memory, how the memory is created in human brain, and how we can really have like can remember what happened. When I'm thinking about that, this is really, I don't know. This is. I don't know how this happened how you have these memories
1: for years or remember this kind of data of the brain if you can just what is memory right so obviously people spend entire careers studying memory so i can only give you the high points but the most important thing to know about memory is that it's not like a videotape every time you remember something your brain your brain recreates that experience The reason we know this is because, here's an example of a good use of fMRI, we know that when you remember something, the same parts of the brain are active as when you experienced it. So whatever you saw, those neurons in your visual cortex are reactivated, etc., this means that memory is dynamic. It's, it's a recreation of the event. It is not a replay of the event. Now, this is critical because it means that it is also not necessarily accurate. Because what happens is, every, between when the event happens and the time we remember it, other things happen. People tell us about things. If we were at an event... Other people are going to be talking about their experience. Whatever they tell us is going to be incorporated into our memory, and we can't tell the difference. So over time, people's memories of events change. They tend to get embellished, right? So when you listen to somebody tell a story and you go, oh, that's not the same story they told me. They must be lying. That's not true. If you have a brother or sister that you grew up with, pick some event from your childhood and talk about it. And you, if you haven't already done this, will discover that their memory of the event may be surprisingly different from yours. And it's not your memory's right, their memory's right. Both of our memories have changed over time. And I, I this, is, this is an example of why having an understanding of very basic neuroscience, you know, matters. Because look at people being, you know, criticized and called liars because their stories have, have, have you know, changed over time when that's just the way memory works. Um, it's just the way that memory works. So we
0: collected another few questions. I think the first one about uh, Neuralink project uh, by Elon Musk. That h- how do you see this project? And do you think one day, because that's was in, uh, in a science fiction, I think, uh, sci-fi movie, I think about uploading data to human brain. For example, if you want to uh, like um, fly, to be a pilot, for example, a helicopter, this with a movie, and then you upload this data, how to be a pilot, for example. Do you think this kind of thought can be reality when they, can we upload data so that you can be experienced in subjects? Is this could happen?
1: Well, I can't, I'm not going to say it can never happen, but I would say that we're a long, long way from it. I mean, there are people who think that, you, you, do you know what the connectome is? That's basically the wiring diagram of the brain. You know, and, and Sebastian song is kind of the big Um, advocate of the idea that if we had the entire wiring diagram we could reproduce the brain but the problem is gets back to that plasticity and the fact that the brain is constantly changing if I had a wiring diagram it would only be a snapshot of a picture in time and actually I have a friend who wrote this wonderful science fiction book called Six Wakes um, by Mer Lafferty And she has these clones that wake up, and in the world that, in her book, people have to constantly upload new versions of themselves so that if they get killed, it will be as up-to-date as possible. (laughs) Um, But, so that's one problem, is is just the problem that that the brain is constantly changing. The other problem right now is that our understanding of the brain is actually still very, very, very primitive. And I know that we're probably getting close to the end of time, so I, I want to make a comment about that that I think is related. Um, in terms of artificial intelligence, because I know you were planning to ask me about artificial intelligence, and I figure we're heading that way. Right now, I mean, artificial intelligence is, is, is amazing. Um, but, I mean, deep learning, you know, it, it, if it, Simulates anything the brain does. It's scratching the surface of what the unconscious does, you know, and and only scratching the surface because um, we have the ability to uh, see somebody once and remember them. Right? We can see an object once and remember it. Deep learning requires that the um, program be. Exp- you know, exposed to the same, you know, or similar images, many, many images for it to learn. And that's not the way people learn. So we are a long way away from simulating how how people learn. Um, there are a couple of possibilities. One is that um, our innate knowledge, you know, like that babies seem to have, we don't put that into artificial intelligence we expect it to learn everything from scratch and it learns a lot from scratch because it can sit there and do all these you know billions of computations Um, but that's not what our brain does so we're a long way from simulating what our brain actually is doing
0: yeah, yeah. And I'm curious to ask you do you think the abstraction as well, for example, when we try to abstract how the brain, or maybe, for example, the amygdala for emotional um, part, for example, how do you see the abstraction? Do you think we have to, know, of course, this is maybe take a lot of time, but do you think we have to abstract each function of the brain, or maybe we have to consider just one part? Because when I look to the the design or the abstraction, as you say, it's just scratching, or maybe not the same how it's happening in the brain.
1: So how do you see that abstraction should looks like? Okay, so let's take the amygdala. People think that the amygdala is all about emotion, but that's that's not even right. The amygdala actually does a lot of decision-making, and it is a demonstration of the fact that emotion and cognition, which is um, decision-making, cannot actually be separated in the brain. They're always intertwined from the very beginning. So we can figure, we can look at a place like the amygdala and try to study, you know, how many different things that it does, um, but that's where the, that's where network theory comes in, Um which is right up the alley for your engineer types because network theory is, you know, very, very math intensive. Um, We're learning that, like I said before, what any individual neuron does has as much to do with who it talks to as where it is. So anytime you hear somebody say, the amygdala, the emotional part, oh, and let me say one other thing. Limbic system, there's no such thing. Triune brain, there is no such thing. I am a huge fan of Carl Sagan, and I read the Dragons of Eden when I was a young adult, but that stuff is obsolete. (laughs) It was actually obsolete back in the 60s, but it was the typical situation where scientists in one field don't really get the up-to-date stuff from the scientists in the other. (laughs)
0: so we are closing and have a few questions the first one what's your aspiration in the podcast what's something you aspire to do
1: maybe goals behind the podcast in
0: the coming years
1: well I'd I'd like to reach more people I used to to think I wanted to be discovered by NPR but I don't think I could afford to work for them Um, I sort of like my freedom and I know they would not pay well, so I don't aspire to that anymore. Um, yeah, my main my main thing is you know to 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 reach you know reach more people uh, because I do think I really really feel that having a basic understanding of neuroscience is going to be a critical skill to being a good citizen in the 21st century.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah. And do you think ego is important for the researcher? When you have new ideas or something, do you think ego is important?
1: I don't know if it's important or not, but it certainly is a reality. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I don't think it's always necessarily ego, but I do think people are driven to a certain extent by wanting prestige and respect, and if you want to call that ego, I guess you can. I mean. Who who didn't who didn't when they were a student imagine winning a Nobel Prize? I mean, it's it's what we do. Then you figure out. I mean, I read. I met Rosalind Yallow when I was a graduate student, and at the time she had just gotten one of the few Nobel prizes ever won by a woman. And I met her in person, and she said to me, "You know, science is hard for women. Winning a Nobel Prize is very hard." You know, she was just really kind of, I think, trying to. You know, keep me from being misled that that was the way, that was the thing that should drive me. I don't think it would have been, but I still remember that conversation and it was like 1979. Positive or negative at this time, when you hear these words,
0: it had a positive or negative impact in you when you hear these words from her.
1: Well, I don't think she meant that the hat, winning it was negative. I just meant that she meant that if that was your reason for trying to do science, you were likely to be disappointed because so few people are actually going, and, and that's even more true now, you know. And of course she was talking in the context of a time when women's work was routinely ignored. Think Rosalind Franklin. And I'm curious to ask you, what is the most important quality you have
0: gained while I'll be working in Both casting and also in research in general? something you have gained in this
1: journey? Well, basically having taught myself neuroscience in creating this show, because I might mention that I'm not a neuroscientist, um, has given me the confidence that I can learn new things. So I went back and did a fellowship in palliative medicine when I was 30 years out of medical school. And that's what I do now, palliative medicine. I don't think I would have done that if it hadn't been for, for the confidence I gained from doing the podcast. I figured if I could learn neuroscience, you know, learning palliative medicine, I could do. Because, you know, it's really common for people to think once they get to a certain age, hey, it's too late to do anything new. That's not true. I won't say it's never too late, but... Um, and I... any. If there's anybody listening who is a later career person, if there's something that you've always wanted to learn or study, do it. That's really
0: wonderful advice. Yeah, yeah. And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you? And was life changing?
1: Hmm. I had a spiritual mentor back in the 90s who said, you know, always show up. Um, you know, always show up, which, you know, now you hear that as, you know, be present. Um, you know, just always, always show up.
0: Yeah, I like that, be present. I think in Eckhart Tolle, I think he said that, be present as well, be in the present. So, yeah, I think uh, most readings this book now, so uh, that's really, I think, very important advice in our life. Yeah, to be present.
1: Yeah, because one of the, sort of um hazards of our brain one of our special skills that we don't know whether any other animal can do is that we can think about the future and we tend to do that a lot you know we tend to think about the past and we tend to think about the future and not be in the present. And that's a really big temptation when you're going through a time like we're in now with COVID, where some of the things we'd like to do, we're not able to do. Um, If you are always living in the future, you know, you're going to, you're going to miss, you're going to miss your life. You're going to wake up one day and go, well, what happened? Where'd my kid go? You know, I I don't have any um, children myself, but a lot of people especially experience that with with um with their children seeming to become adults while they weren't looking. Um so our brain gives us the ability to plan and think about the future and we almost have to make an effort to be in the present. It's like it, it doesn't seem to come naturally for most of us.
0: Yeah, that's really deep advice. Yeah. So thanks so much to Dr. Gentle. I think this is really fascinating and thoughtful discussion and I think uh, we learned a lot from you. So thank you once again for time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.